0: Uh, this podcast concerns a very old and yet utterly contemporary piece of, uh, of uh, media that has been hitting my theological unconscious with a powerful thump in recent times. And it is the uh, very old television drama from... 1959, 1661, entitled One Step Beyond. Now, um... I've written an essay about One Step Beyond on Lloyd Fonville's website, www.mardecortezbaja.com. And you can look under the ZAL file uh, to the left of the homepage of uh, mardecortezbaja.com and find this essay. I find that I resonate uh, even more deeply today with the essay because I'm looking at it um, the material, uh, both psychologically and theologically, and it really is something quite arresting and unusual that I want to uh, present uh, to you. It is a kind of a return to the kind of interests I often lovingly and uh, almost uh, fatuously have in obscure um, sci-fi slash fantasy slash horror uh, media. And um, uh, yet this uh, little uh, show, which has taken on a life of its own, although it's only very recently been put in a realizable video form – where you can actually see it. This show is uh, such a shocking penetration into the uh, tragedy of human psyche and yet the uh, universal character of human love as a kind of love action and energy force that far transcends the envelopes and the human dramas and even the bodies in which we find love incarnated and expressed that it is crying out for a podcast. Now let me give you the bare essentials. You can look up this uh, uh, anywhere on uh, the um, on uh, on the uh, internet, especially on YouTube. Uh, I'll give you just the bare essentials. Then I'll say what this remarkably produced and lovingly fashioned and with one clear vision uh, undertaken and created uh, specimen of human tragic truth coupled with a powerful message of the universality of love. I'll talk about that after I give you just a little bit of an intro so you can follow this up yourself. This is really worth something. I I've, I show this to people, I talk about it to people, and they are rather devastated and surprised by the... Um, um, uh, character of the almost impersonal; therefore, it's uh, utterly applicable to all times and places. Substance of this little television show: the show was pre Twilight Zone; it was sort of the kind of prequel to the Twilight Zone, though Rod Serling had uh, nothing to do with it, and it was um, uh, uh, the the brainchild of some writers named uh, uh, Merwin Gerard or Gerard Merwin, and uh, a fellow named Collier, and uh, uh, a couple of other inspired um, scriptwriters in the earlier days of television. And uh, primarily the uh, director of the show and the actor in almost all the episodes is kind of a Rod Serling comment at the beginning in which he actually gets into the stage, into the action. And uh, the same at the end of each uh, show... It was what we today would call a kind of docudrama of um, supposed uh, recorded Ripley's ability or not type instances of um, paranormal activity. And John Newland, who had acted in many things, was a very suave, apparently a, sort of an insider of television in those days, who went on to, to, uh, to, um, to, to do many other things, including the sort of recent comeback DVD with Kim Darby, who was originally the uh, wonderful star of the first version of True Grit. I, I think it's called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, made in 1973 a television movie, which is genuinely frightening to this day and has been kind of a miracle to those who've seen it. But John Newland was a Hollywood or uh, television character who uh, had all sorts of irons in the Fire, but he actually um, directed and uh, uh, acted as the narrator in 96, that is every single one of these television shows, called One Step Beyond, which were weekly, starting in 1959 and 1961. Now, the fact that I saw a whole bunch of them when I was little, Simply makes them sort of more au courant because when I begin to see them today they they jump out with a altogether a deeper uh, um, uh, penetration into what they're actually about now. What I will do is give you a list of the ones that you uh, would really uh, – you'll thank me. I, I, you may be scared, but uh, even in the year 2011, 2012, I believe that you may end up possibly, maybe not, but possibly thanking me for directing you to these episodes. All you do is you go to YouTube and then you – Type in the name of the episode, which I'll give you, and then One Step Beyond, and almost all of them are available in each of them in three 10-minute segments uh, on YouTube. Now, because of uh, all sorts of copyright things, these went into the public domain, so the quality of what you'll see is sort of 16-millimeter, almost like rental prints, and they're very poor. They're muddy and dark, and there's no contrast, and half the time you can't see what's going on, and they skip, and there's all sorts of uh, dirt on the frame, and they cry out to be remastered and the first season has been remastered it appeared a year and a half ago in beautiful new prints the first season they were finding their way and although there are two masterpieces actually three in my opinion uh, masterpieces in the first season uh, the second season and the third uh, have more especially the second season now at one point uh, Newland got this bright idea which I assume was some kind of a deal to go to England and film a bunch of them in England most all of which the ones filmed in England are not as good. I don't think it was the same production team, maybe not the same photographer not the same sort of mood and they were out of the loop and those are often sort of rather lame attempts to be costume dramas of sort of 19th century people and they fail and a whole bunch of the Outer Limits I mean these uh, one Step Beyond episodes fail, especially when they try to get too big, but when they stay in just domestic little dramas of people who are gripped by psychological loss and pain and acute, urgent, catastrophic suffering with some kind of a, a – um, Uh, ling-lang, a a bell rung for a larger vision uh, of reality, then they become universal and truly great minor works of art. Notice I say great minor works of art. Now, Um, I said to somebody that, boy, that was a spectacular episode, and she very wisely said, well, not spectacular, but good. Actually, it was a Jacques Demy film called Model Shop that she was referring to rightly as well, but you don't want to overdo it. These are – for what they are, they are cheap extremely well done uh, very incisive succinct looks into the heart of human pain. Now I'm going to give you a list. There are dozens and dozens of good ones but I'm going to give you a list, talk about them briefly and tell you why you need to see these and why these are important to a a picture of the, the human drama that is true to the loss and the mourning and the sorrow and the frustration and the pain and the confusion and the deception uh, that flesh is heir to and also the tremendous positive message which sort of crosses over a little bit into paranormal thinking. And then you're going to sort of raise your eyebrows. So please don't. I'm not going to endorse the paranormal side of it. But I am going to underline one aspect of the paranormal um, idea that exists in several of these shows. And it has to do with the universal reach and the um, almost um, impersonal ultimate reality, the one absolute ontology of love that I have talked about and the energy of love which is above and beyond all human instances of it but is both the answer to and the revelation of just about every drama of broken human relationships that you and I are prey to. I'm looking at this pastorally, I'm looking at it personally, and I'm looking at it in the attitude of grace, in the attitude of where do these sufferers, who are so brilliantly uh, portrayed on the small screen with all these fierce and furious close-ups, what do we learn about the antidote to human suffering? Now let me give you a couple. Season one of One Step Beyond, and believe me, all of these can be seen on YouTube. To my knowledge, every single one can. If not, you can rent them, although the copies are terrible, except for this first season, and the copies are exemplary. In the first season, You want to see the dark part of the house in which a uh, uh, recently widowed man uh, has uh, decided to hate his little eight-year-old daughter because she survived a car crash which killed her mother. And it is a drama of a father who has displaced his rage against reality, God, life, uh, on his daughter who survived an accident. And the daughter knows it. And the daughter is beside herself with rejection, this eight-year-old daughter – and they go. This all take. These are all in the 50s because it was made in the late 50s, early 60s. And you'll see a few little things that aren't politically correct, but uh, but very few. A few little things, but uh, the the uh, concern that Newland and um, uh, uh, the producers and writers Larry Marcus and others had of this show. You can look it all up. Their concerns were universal. They were not. Uh, they were not uh, in the here and now. Uh, attitudinally, culturally, they were looking for the universal. And the little girl develops a kind of a um, an attachment to three dolls who become a medium for a force in the house of uh, dead children uh, that ends up speaking through the dolls to the daughter, and bringing this terrible friction between her and her widowed father widower father uh, to a boil and has a powerfully real and beautiful um, denouement, which in 25 minutes is spellbinding and uh, very true to life. The Return of Mitchell Campion is about a man who uh, finds himself visiting uh, uh, an island in the Mediterranean off the coast of Spain, and everybody who's there believes he's been there before, except for him. He's an American tourist, and they all treat him like he's been there before, and they love him, and he's a regular visitor, and they just welcome with open arms, including his true love, and uh, he uh, he doesn't know anything about it. I uh, had a tremendous association when I sometimes think about my past life And I have less emotional gravitation to so many aspects of my uh, past life, having sort of died, I guess, as I see it, in uh, 2007 in a way that was uh, decisive and very real for me. And I often look back on people and events and situations of the life prior to 2007, and I don't even identify with it. It's not because I don't identify with the people. I don't identify with the me who was identifying with those people. And that's the terribly vexing challenge that Mitchell Campion has, who is from Ohio and he's now faced with all these people who know him and love him and he doesn't recognize them because he's not the same person that he was. Well, uh, death comes into it and uh, finally he, because he meets sort of his true love and he begins to, just because of her love, he begins to sort of cotton on to something deep that's going on and it has a very powerful and illuminating resolution involving the uh, connection of the old and the new by means of death. It's a very very um, suggestive Metaphor. Then you have the burning girl about a young uh, pubescent uh, 14-year-old teenage girl, 13-year-old teenage girl whose mother has died and she lives with a horrible, hypocritical, uh, pious, mean aunt who's actually a drunk, uh, who is a secret drunk. Uh, and she lives with her aunt and her father and her father's feckless and hapless in the light of the death of his own wife, the mother of this child and uh, the child is uh, has the ability to, to throw fire like, you know, uh, pyrokinesis. Uh, remember uh, Drew Barrymore as a child? Uh, uh, fire starter? All that comes out of this thing and she, but it's not a, a supernatural thing. She does it when she's angry and when she's dealing with sex, when boys kind of try to sort of take advantage of her at 13 and 14 and other boys in the school. She gets incredibly anxious <clears throat> and angry and causes fires and When her aunt uh, is uh, abusing her verbally and almost physically, she throws fires and it 's really a picture of uh, of abuse uh, in a Cinderella sense by an aunt uh, it 's about alcoholism it 's a little bit about religion, sad to say it 's about um, sexual fantasy it 's about um, uh, girls who are both drawn to young boys you know girls and what is it riding in cars with girls or riding Riding in cars with boys you know that kind of uh, but at the same hand are uh, full of anger for the way they're being uh, at such a young age being treated and uh, all, all, almost raped you, you, you on the uh, without even knowing what's going on it's a horrifying thing it has a happy ending as they always had to in these days but her the close-ups the camera work uh, Newland directs it so that the small screen is perfectly used. This is called what used to be called black and white, the, the kind of photography... Uh, wasn't there a guy named Conrad Hall? I think he was the master of this in the 60s, but he's not the photographer one step beyond. But everything is in close-up, these dramatic close-ups of anguished faces, angry, hurt, uh, disturbed... Uh, Job-like, suffering, shouting, screaming faces. Uh, th- 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 this is beyond, there's, a, there's one called Epilogue in which a man realizes that the person he he was uh, dealing with, his, his wife, has in fact been dead while he's been dealing with her Her image in front of him and he begins to scream and scream, played by, uh, what is his name, Charles Aidman, and he screams so loud, it's, it's just, you have to turn it off, it's so painful, because you would too. Now in, uh, that's uh, the dark part of the house, the return of Mitchell Campion and The Burning Girl in uh, season one. Now, in um, season two... Who are you has got to be one of the most stunning to use the modern word. You know, I said recently there are certain modern words which are used like, you know, um, stunning, which is an attempt to be a uh, politi- uh, non-value judgment. I- I'm stunned by bad news and I'm also stunned by good news, so it doesn't make a value judgment. Well, then there are words like, you know, rattled. Everybody today is running around being rattled and every- because they don't have control and everyone's being um, – everybody's scrambling, you know, when there's a crisis. So all the State Department today was scrambling or everybody at Al- Coa was scrambling to, to control damage control because of this or that crisis or eventuality, and these are all words. You know, they reflect where we are. Um, the um, uh, who are you is stunning, and in it, a, a young girl who's uh, been dying of a f- scarlet fever about oh, it's about 1900 in small little town in Ohio again, uh, and she uh, kind of looks up, and her parents, who are so uh, terribly worried for her, lovely mother and father, young mother and father, and the girl begins to recover, and she looks up, and she said, who are you? And she doesn't think they're her parents, and she runs to a neighboring town 17 miles away, and finds her parents. But, they're not her parents. They are a, a, a sort of couple in their early 40s who have lost their daughter. Their daughter has died, and the mother is in such acute grief. She's in a kind of rest home. She's in such blocked grief, she cannot She cannot even speak. And the defeated, defeated father in this other town, and suddenly the girl bursts in, and daddy, mommy, and she treats them and recognizes them and knows everything around the house, and the dog comes in and recognizes her, but it's not their child, who's dead, uh, well, you can imagine what's happened. The dead child's soul has uh, possessed the body of this other girl who was dying of scarlet fever, who came back. But inside she was one person, and outside she was another. And the the horrifying uh, uh, pain of her natural parents, who are completely rejected by their sort of 13-year-old daughter in favor of the other parents, whose, uh, whose grief is catalyzed in the most extraordinarily focused, dramatic, horrible way by this interloper who insists that she is their daughter. Well, if you haven't, if this doesn't touch the core pain of separation and potential loss, and who are you? Who is my mother? You know, if you've ever lost a parent, I've often said that in pastoral counseling, people who have lost uh, their natural mother or their natural father at a young age are handicapped, are deeply handicapped, and this poor child is, uh, she is, uh, she is in the deepest way. She has uh, her parents; she thinks they are reject her, and her real parents, she doesn't think of her parents. Well, it has a most extraordinary resolution and a very powerful one, and you can almost guess what it is. But again, the camera's constantly focusing on, and the, he got these great actors and actresses. He uses Anna Lee, the wonderful. English English actress who was in horror films long, long ago with uh, Boris Karloff in the 30s and then came over to America and, and became one of John Ford's starlets. That's not quite the word. Supporting, favorite supporting actors in Fort Apache and in How Green Was My Valley and in The Horse Soldiers. Anna Lee keeps coming into it in uh, television shows that uh, John Ford would produce. She became a, a, in, in these great movies of genius, but here she shows up as the grieving mother, completely Convincing with an American accent. She put it on well, but not overly, not overdone. In Who Are You? in Season Two, the 1960 season of uh, early, late 1960, or shall I say early 1960 of Season Two. Uh, Then you have Delia, D E L I A got to get Delia. Delia, a man is uh, a really difficult, impossible sort of half drunk guy is sort of uh, alone on a Caribbean island in a not very well visited Caribbean island having a so called vacation and there's this beautiful sort of sexy divorcee who's obviously having her divorce finalized or something like that a Haitian divorce, remember Steely Dan? And uh, uh, this man, this woman comes on to him in this sort of Caribbean bar and he's not interested at all, he's mean to Her. I mean, who would be? He makes a mistake, by the way. He makes a mistake. She's sexy and beautiful and available and he doesn't want anything to do with her. And then he sort of takes a walk in this little tiny set. It's just a little, a tiny little set in the corner of some studio in Hollywood. And he runs into this beautiful woman of about 38. 30 maybe 28 played by I think an actress called Barbara Lord and he meets her and the music pops in there was a guy named Harry Lubin L U B I N who did a uh, the track that they use uh, by Harry Lubin you can get this on YouTube or iTunes is called Weird and it's on the One Step Beyond uh, album which was re-released I think in connection with the new DVD a few years ago One Step Beyond by Harry Lubin look at the track Weird not the one Fear which you'll recognize Da-da a Theremin comes in. But that's not the one you want. You want the theme by the same author for the same show called Weird. And that always plays when the supernatural. He meets Delia, this beautiful blonde um, woman whose tremendous dignity. She's sort of the ultimate woman. And he meets her and he instantly falls in love with her. Who are you? And they have this, and they walk around this little forest. And they're absolutely in, you know, the face that launched a thousand ships. I mean, this is the one. And, um uh it is uh, this mom, you know, but but nevertheless, it's it's true love. And they sort of agree to part briefly while she goes somewhere else. And he goes up to get his things and he goes back up to where he's staying and they've never heard of her. They've never seen her. They have no idea who she is. And uh, he's mean again to the brunette, very wrongly. Uh, it uh, rebounds on him. And uh, he looks for her and no one's heard her. No one knew who she is. No one's ever seen her. And then later on, at the very end of the show, in kind of a post epilogue, we hear that he um, spent, went all over the world looking for her. Uh, Then he became so upset that he couldn't find her that he became an alcoholic and he died looking for her in a boat, I think drunk. And then there's a very odd and unusual little breaking the fourth wall thing that happens at the end that actually is based on a conceit. It's not true. It's an actress. It's not the real person. But with the music, the small set, these incredible close-ups, it is a picture of love, L-U-V, in the deepest core... Mother to son sexualized sense you have ever seen in your life. And if you've ever had that kind of, you know, gonzo uh, attraction to somebody that is entirely determined, uh, that has a dreamlike quality, then you'll know. Um, and I've seen it so often in people who fell in love in that kind of a way. And it turned out to be, of course, when reality hit later and often not so long later, a complete dream and a deception, but it captures it with such gut-level force, Delia. Now, there are a couple others, and I'm just going to leave... Uh, gonna One is called Dead Ringer, about a, a woman who is apparently setting fires to orphanages especially Roman Catholic orphanages she goes around the country setting fires to Roman Catholic orphanages but um, they can't catch her and somewhere far away another person has this tremendous identification this by the way was these are kind of X-Files episodes for the 50's because X-Files often had the paranormal as opposed to aliens you know a third of the X-Files episodes had to do with paranormal a third had to do with kind of natural monsters you know the Jersey what if demons and the guy in the the carcinogenic creature from the Black Lagoon, the pollution creature, and then the, the people that killed Vasco da Gama or whoever it was. I mean, it was, no, the guy, the Fountain of Youth guy. Um, he, he, all this, uh, and then they would have the ones about the um, the actual so-called mythology, Chris Carter, but a third of them were uh, prime paranormal. And these are better, though, because they're so psychologically rooted. They're, they're, they're so psychological. Well, um, see the Dead Ringer, where about this supposed person who. Uh, is going around burning down orphanages, especially Catholic orphanages, and see uh, Anniversary of a Murder, which is about guilt and adultery, while never mentioning the word adultery and only hinting at it, yet hinting at it so obviously that it's hinting, uh, expressing the feeling without ever using the word, of uh, two people who are obviously having an adulterous affair but without ever using the word or even saying it because they couldn't at that point, but the feeling of anguish of these two lost, tortured, adulterous souls who are caught up very powerfully Powerfully by a ghost on a tape recorder. (gasps) That episode is just beyond. They don't even, after you see it, you won't even think of, uh, of breaking that important commandment. You, uh, it's just extraordinary. We ought to show it at all our premarital classes after they've gotten married, if they ever get married in the church anymore, because most people are getting married in gazebos on the beach or at country clubs. You know, Hollywood has taken the stuffing out of uh, church weddings, and so uh, they're far fewer than there used to be. Uh, let's all get married on the beach at Destin type of thing. But anyway, if you've, uh, I think I'll show this after they get married after the honeymoon and their sort of post-marital appointment with the minister, if I do that again. Anniversary of a murder. But there's uh, two more. Legacy of Love also is about two people compulsively drawn to one another on a seaside vacation. Unfortunately, one of them, the man has his wife and son with him while he is compulsively and irresistibly drawn to a beautiful woman who is irresistibly drawn for him to a reason she doesn't understand and they have a romantic and passionate coming together that is seen to be what it is through, in most unbelievable thing that happens at the end. That's called Legacy of Love. But I want to close before I actually say why I'm so interested. The one that you have to see at all points, the one that most people believe is the best of all of them because it was so high class, is called The Visitor. And it's towards the end of season two, The Visitor. And again, you can do this on YouTube. And it was important because it starred Joan Fontaine and Warren Beatty. And it was Warren Beatty's first... uh, first part. It was his first ever part in a television show uh, or, or a movie, but it was his first ever part, his appearance in The Visitor in which he plays a very young man his own age and a man who's uh, 25 years older than he is also in this uh, teleplay called The Visitor about a broken and devastated, uh, tragic uh, marriage on a snowy night and a visitor who appears. Uh, this has been done in many other, this form of this in which someone in an earlier incarnation visits someone. In a later incarnation of the relationship. Uh, un, uh, you know, it's almost a Dickens thing. It has a very powerful and very beautiful and ultimately very healing resolution. You'll love the visitor, and it's all filmed in this tiny little sort of set of a little mountain house, but very très moderne in 1959. Those of you who like architecture and camp will like the modern 50s interior, which is perfect. And the camera work is truly some of be- John Newland's best ever that he did. Now, I'm going to take a, uh, a cherry uh, Coke Zero. Ugh, zero, zero, just of everything I like. But I'm going to um, take a sip of that, and then I'm going to say why I feel so strongly and passionately about One Step Beyond. Ah. Now, why is this so important? It's important for two reasons. John Newland, as the director took these little sort of, again, they're sort of, you know, would you believe it if I told you that so-and-so thought she was somebody else and it happened in Winesburg, Ohio in 1897 and all the papers reported it, but now she's living happy and well in Sausalito. If I told you that, um, what it is is that you had a very gifted, uh, insightful uh, mover of the camera. That's John Newland. And uh, who, my friend Lloyd Fonville says wonderfully, you know, who's directed wonderful movies. You, you know where the heart of the director is, the, where, where he, when he moves his camera. Watch when the director moves his or her camera. And that's where the director's interest is. That's where the director's heart is. Watch the movements. And uh, I always remember a remarkable movement in The Sunshine's Bright, 1952, by John Ford, who very seldom moved his camera. And this particular moving of the camera is so revealing in the opening segment of that that it it says, it verifies everything that Lloyd says, uh, specifically from a man who rarely, rarely moved his camera. Now, there's also a movement like that in The Searchers on John Wayne's face. Now he moves his camera and what he does is he takes his camera in this is a television idea it's the small screen and he moves the camera in on these tortured faces in that's he's always moving his camera in and he he always had go, almost always had very good actors and actresses and he moves the camera in on a tortured face loss confusion fear anxiety deep mourning utter appalledness profound aversion very rarely is it attraction except an attraction that is kind of compelled or you know the strings are being pulled by psychic forces so the one step beyond was a psychological thriller That then took the paranormal, because it was so short, it fulfilled all the things I've tried to say over the years about brevity, never more than 25 minutes, 24, 25 minutes, 26 max, but I think 24 minutes, always in three short segments. Camera work, fluid and always emphasizing, but nothing already. Occasionally, he'll pull the camera up to the God's eye view, but almost always the camera is roughly at ground level or action level. I would call it face level and constantly moving in for the emotional kill on the faces. And then the the face reveals torture and anguish. And uh, that is absolutely what it's all about. Now, the second thing that it's about, it's about the universal and impersonal character of love. You see, the, the the myth behind the paranormal is that there is some kind of universal force uh, that is constantly moving in and out. So that's why possession, quote, end of quote, which is not demonic or satanic or evil in any of these shows, at least maybe one I can think of, but almost none are satanic, Uh, It's not a cult in that sense. It is paranormal in that usually it's someone is trying to get a message through uh, to somebody else by being in not their body because they can't be in their body at the time. They're on the Titanic or they're not on the Titanic or they're in 17 miles away. Uh, They're trying to get where they're dead. Uh, They're trying to get a message through to a live person and they have no way to do it through their own body. So they get into the body of someone else or through a letter or through a um, sort of strange presence or a dream. uh, They get into the reality of somebody else's life because it's love. It's almost always love that is reaching out. It is always... A form of love that is trying to be heard. I always talk about Traffic, you know, that beautiful first album. Where actually, it was their second album, not hey, Hello, Mr. Fantasy, but the second album. Someone is trying to be heard. Is it 40,000 Headmen? I'm not sure, but it's one of those great songs. Someone is trying to be heard. Now, this is love that is coming out that is suppressed by some historical frustration like death or distance, geographical distance. And the love is wounded love that is attempting to comfort, to reach out, to get its message across, to speak, to express, to reassure to aid to, uh, to 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 communicate love that is trying to communicate and in some cases it's a love gone wrong for example the poor orphaned person who has been so abused in foster homes, especially church foster homes, that she uses uh, a, a relative to uh, dispatch her frustrated love, which has turned into extreme hatred and bitterness towards these orphanages that she's burning down, causing the deaths especially of nuns and all that. I mean, it's, you know, Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all to you. This is way before that. The show is not anti-religious. Uh, clergymen appear in a good light. I I can think of at least four of the 96, and I suspect it's more like eight of the 96 uh, um, episodes of uh, One Step Beyond in which a minister, either a Catholic priest or a nice garden variety mainstream Lutheran or Presbyterian minister is portrayed in a good light. It was not a time in America when you would portray clergy badly, although uh, the, the, the church foster homes uh, are portrayed very badly and there are a couple of other places where a clergyman is seen as intolerant um, but for the most part, clergy are seen as figures that you'd go to. Remember that scene in Invaders from Mars, the original Invaders from Mars from 1954 or 3, whenever it was, when when the lovely Pat Blake, Dr. Blake, uh, Pat Blake, the social worker, tells the young boy who feels that his parents have become uh, taken over by Martians, which they have, uh, he says, uh, what do I do, what do I do? And she says, well, have you talked to your minister about it? Great line can you believe it? She's a social worker. She said, "Well, you know, uh, I think have you talked to your minister about it?" <laughs> he hasn't. Poor kid. Uh, so um, if these are not anti-religious at all. They're actually. This is what I want to close you with. They're deeply religious. Very often the the sort of free thinking John Newland, who uh, occasionally sounds more eastern than western, but he's very east. Uh, but he's very east coast American looking. Uh, probably California, but wherever he was from, he speaks uh, uh, and he. Uh, um, he he will often say things about the the universal character of the now you know that'll come into it so you know where he was coming from but what is so powerful is these are all about anguished people who are frustrated in love or have become uh, deranged by loss and something is trying to be heard a, a message of love a message of protection a message of guardianship a message of solicitude a message of human compassion interest and caring is being expressed in what we today, or even they today, would call the paranormal, one step beyond. Well, that's why it's fascinating. Isn't this true? I mean, let's just remember that love is universal. Forster said it at the end of it, or was it at the beginning? I always remember. I think it was in Howard's End, somewhere in there, Ian Forster says, you know, there's only one thing that really matters, One, and this is a biblical thing. It's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the Gospel of John, and many other uh, important Impressions in scripture, obviously 1 Corinthians 13, where there is love, ubicaritas, there is God, ubicaritas. And this uh, show is about the universal body jumping character, not of alien parasites. But of a love that is attempting to comfort, reassure, and bring, dare I say it to use words like rattled and scrambled and stunning, bring closure to people who are utterly hung up in love that has been shattered and torn from them too soon, mautically. And I want you to uh, think about uh, this. One untimely born, St. Paul. Uh, Think about love in your life and the power of getting in touch with that love which can reassure. And you will see why implicitly One Step Beyond is oddly one of the most true because of these anguished close-ups and hopeful because of its message about a communicative universal and fortunately, impersonal love, which is out to comfort persons and I rest my case. I hope you'll watch some of these uh, episodes, muddy and terrible as they are, although you can netflix the first uh, the first uh, season, and you'll get a beautiful uh, transfer of the first season, but a lot of those shows weren't as good they, they took their second season to get into the depth of it. But you can see The Burning Girl, The Return of Mitchell Campion, The Dark Part of the House, Dead Part of the House. And listen carefully on YouTube to Harry Lubin's immortal music, which I find both weird, uplifting, deeply unsettling, and finally hopeful, his track Weird for One Step Beyond. Thank you so much, and God bless.